Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. Evolution is a constant presence in our lives, but what does it mean for humanity and the world around us? It's nice to imagine in sci-fi settings the next step of human evolution, but what does that really mean? Is that something we can measure? And what could be driving it? Plus, just by having humans exist in an ecosystem, we lead to the evolution in animals and plants. But what does that mean for the future of our planet and biodiversity? If you've watched the X-Men series or any other superhero or science fiction movie, book or premise that involves the evolution of humanity to the next level in this constant progression and chain, developing superpowers or various other plot devices like this, you may sit and wonder, is it actually possible? Traditionally, if you think about evolution, you'd think about it as some long continuous chain of ever-increasing improvements, and so therefore it's only logical that humanity should have some kind of next level that will be achieved. But the reality of evolution is something very different. Evolution does not necessarily mean an improvement process. It's more actually an amalgamation over a long period of times of various mutations and which ones are more successful in that particular environment end up being more widely spread and adopted. It's not some very logical linear progression path where you're just climbing up a ladder. Sometimes things could evolve one way and then lose that. For example, uh, small ocean-going creatures came to shore developed into mammals, and then some of those mammals went back into the ocean. If you looked at escaping the ocean as a linear chain, then that would look like they went backwards. But in fact, that's how whales and dolphins and seals all came about, and they're very successful as animals in their own right. So what about human evolution? Is there a a next step for human evolution? And Harvard economist Jonathan Bochamp has actually investigated this topic and published his results in a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, a reasonably prestigious journal in the United States. Now, there's a quasi-consensus in the scientific community that humanity stopped evolving, so to speak, approximately 40,000 years ago, basically after the time of the advent of agriculture. In order to test the hypothesis that humanity did stop evolving, he analysed 20,000 records from, which he obtained from their health and retirement study, which compiled data on people born between the years 1931 and 53. And the reason why I chose that group was because the majority of them were past childbearing age. So he calculated an RLRS uh, score, index score for all of them. So besides counting how many children they had, he also looked at body mass index, uh, various of, uh, types of illnesses such as schizophrenia, the age of onset of menstruation and education level all traits that we know have genetic roots, so it can be traced in the genome. And after starting that data, Beauchamp found evidence of evolution in two phenotypes, a slight uptick in the age of first menstruation and a trend towards a lower RLRS for people who had more education. Conversely, people who had less education had more kids and thus had more opportunity to pass on their genes. Now, The really interesting part about this study isn't so much that it found results here in this small sample set of 20,000 people. It's more interesting now to compare that to a wider data set, simply because this study was very, very limited. Uh, Obviously, it was constricted in what it studied, and it it left out a a lot of interesting new changes. And whilst evolution is obviously still at work in our species, it has become a lot harder to notice its impacts. 
For starters, evolution is a very, very long timescale problem, and it's not immediately obvious which changes or traits will be successful. For example, the study results found that uh, in the sample set that Beauchamp analyzed, uh, the early onset of menstruation was actually increasing. But comparing that to larger studies internationally, that's they've actually found that it is decreasing. So this means that you know it, you, you might be able to find changes or upticks in different parts of the population, but whether or not those will become the large widespread uh, base part of the population, which is what happens with evolution, remains to be seen. And the only way you can really tell that is to wait 100,000 years and look back, which is probably outside the scopes of most funded research projects. On top of that, we're actually really starting to impact uh, the evolutionary process. Evolutionary process works by mutations and genes occurring and then that being passed on to offspring. And we are having more and more control over offspring that are ha- uh, that are conceived and fertilized and brought to life and then have their own children. For example, things like artificial fertility measures uh, and slight genetic screening and so on have all have a role in changing the nature of the species and sort of tuning with the evolutionary processes, which means it's not so simple to simply model like we do for animals or like we look at in the past of humanity because who are having children and what is getting passed on to them is very much something that humans are then influencing themselves. So therefore, it's not a really simple study to think about evolution. And the reality is that whilst we may be tempted to look for trends and changes in you know the immediate past 100 years, that is nowhere near long enough to really undertake a good evolutionary study. instead of trying to use evolution to predict the future of humanity, we should instead study evolution in the past and see what changes have resulted in us in the past and what's caused them to better understand what may happen to us today. And a recent study published by Ernard and Petrov from Stanford University in the United States have found some really interesting things. And that is that viruses have been one of the most significant factors driving human evolution since our divergence with chimpanzees. In fact, their study has shown that about 30% of all protein adaption, so it's a particular type of evolution, but basically changes in our proteins. Since humans diverge with chimpanzees, so 30% of all these adaptions in this particular set for that period of time from when we split with chimpanzees have been driven by viruses. And basically, this is pretty logical. When you have a pandemic or an epidemic at some point in the evolutionary journey, uh, the population that didn't make it, that didn't, uh, the population that struggled to counter the virus is obviously not going to necessarily reproduce and pass on its genes. Those that did manage to survive the virus or maybe had an adaption that made them more, more suited to surviving whatever the virus was inflicting on them pass on their genes to reproduce and thus see more of the evolutionary record. And this is a kind of obviously really logical way of 
understanding evolution. And this seems kind of like the, the logical outcome. But when Ernard and Petrov actually dug into the details and analysed a large record of these samples, they found that it had a really, really strong and clear effect, much stronger than they ever thought was actually be present. Now, what are proteins doing? Why are we studying about the adaptions to them? Well, proteins are basically a major part of what keeps our cells ticking over. They do a lot of different functions and are essential to our survival. And by adjusting and tweaking proteins in both shape, composition, and function, uh, it means that you can change the responses, particularly of mammals and humans, to viruses. And so what's interesting about studying the behavior of these proteins and the adaptions and changes in these proteins is that you can then also learn what parts of cells or what parts of our existence has previously adapted to fight viruses and therefore it has obvious implications for the hunt for new antiviral treatments today. Now previously when we, we think about using and investigating proteins to find which ones are the best at tackling uh, viruses, you go to the areas of cells which deal with immunoresponse, your immune system's areas and control and power. And clearly tweaking that would obviously have the most punch and effect for tackling viruses because it's literally their job. But this study sort of looked beyond that and looked to all areas of proteins rather than just one narrow subset. So obviously the immunoresponse proteins actually adapted a lot against viruses. That makes sense. But also, there are a wide variety of proteins that had a lot of changes. And to study this, they, they basically made a list of about 1,300 proteins of interest and then used uh, big data algorithms to just scour genomic databases to hunt through big archive lists of databases and see and compare the, the history and the presence of these different proteins, changes and tweaks over time. So what was really interesting that came out of this study is that viruses have a huge impact on the population, the evolution of our genomes, in particular, obviously, our proteins. But they don't just shape the the proteins in our body and the parts of our body that deal with fighting viruses. They shape all of our genetic code, which is really, really interesting. Um, so you actually see changes becoming more prominent, more spreading in response to the viruses outside where you'd think to look. Which means that viruses actually are exerting a huge amount of evolutionary pressure on humanity and other species to adapt and change. And not just in immune response, but a wide variety of others. And this actually gives us an idea why sometimes we end up with closely related species that have evolved different machinery to perform basically the same type of function. Mostly because they're just responding to the different viral pressures differently. And this actually enables us to understand what may impact humanity's evolution in a concrete way. Our response to the impact of viruses, pandemics, and epidemics, and how that may shape humanity and other species going forward. So sometimes what can impact our evolution as a species is not the big macro issues that you may think about, but really something that's with us all the time viruses.
It's a sad fact of our modern world that we are causing the extinction of many species. And lots of groups are doing great work to try and increase conservation and save species that are on the endangered list from going extinct forever. But the reality is that despite our best efforts, we are still, as a species, as humanity, having a negative impact on many species around us, wiping them out from existence. But on those that manage to survive, we are still also having a great impact on those that are left behind. And a recent study from the Center of Macroevolutionary and Climate at the University of Copenhagen have looked at the species that are left behind in these gaps from where other species have died off. So the main premise of this study is that, well, when humans lead to the extinction of one species, that leaves a gap in the evolutionary ecosystem. And that niche gets filled by another species. Or when humans start to enter an ecosystem and cause changes, the species around that start to rapidly evolve just to struggle to survive. Now, some aren't successful and go extinct, but others actually manage to have some substantial changes and sort of adapt to live in this new niche, this niche where humanity is in there exerting a pressure on them. So in that way, humans are actually driving the evolution of some types of animals and species. Now, obviously, things like domestication uh, and farming have meant that we have literally curated, controlled, and driven evolution of new species. That That's obvious. You know, we, we are literally driving evolution ourselves, and we do that with fish, with animals, with plants all the time. But even in those that we're not tackling in that way, simply our presence in an ecosystem and our changes to it can lead to adaption and evolution in a species. For example, the common house mosquito uh, which you know we, we typically are familiar with, has actually evolved and adapted in London to live specifically in the humid and warm conditions of the London underground, the tube. In fact, it has diverged significantly enough away from the normal, its original species, the common house mosquito, to now be the a new species called the London underground mosquito it can no longer interbreed with the above-ground counterpart and is, effectively, a brand new species. A brand new species that has evolved into living environment created by humans and only very recently from an evolutionary perspective. Another example is the, un- the impact of hunting on a species that can lead to uh, 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 humans having impact on selection, which leads to new species developing or relocation. Now, it's tempting to think that, oh, oh, that's great. So it doesn't matter what humans do, animals will be fine and plants will be fine because they'll just adapt to fill the niche and the void left behind. So when one species dies off, another one will rise in its place. But it's not safe to assume that we'll have a net one-to-one replacement here. In fact, the study goes to so far to say that, look, whilst we lose um, all these species through extinction or human impact, it's we're not actually having a neutral replacement rate and or which is which is not great but also we're actually decreasing the diversity of species available which also decreases their resiliency so whilst we might have lots of new types of dogs and animals available 
we're actually decreasing the genetic diversity and species diversity and ending up with more homogenous with more homogenous species. And in fact, since the last ice age about 11,000 years ago, it's estimated that about 255 mammals and 523 bird species have gone extinct, mostly due to human activity. And whilst we have relocated and expanded 900 known species and domesticated about 700, we're not actually uh, leading to the creation of new species as fast as we would have pre- we need to do to fill the gap that we leave behind. So we need to understand biodiversity is an important fact of our existence. It's not good enough just to have an environment that's full of all of the same kind of normalized, banalized species of animals and plants. We need that diversity and we need to maintain that diversity. And a lot of that is to do with conservation, but also understanding the changes that we force upon those existing species just purely by existing in the human ecosystem. And this is some great work being done in collaboration between the University of Queensland and the University of Copenhagen to study the impact of biodiversity from humans in a new and interesting way. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we learnt about the difficulties of studying human evolution and the impact viruses have on our evolution as a species over the last millennium. Plus, we learnt about changes humans can have on the evolution of animals and plants and biodiversity. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.